Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Today, after a far too long hiatus, but things just kept coming up, we are coming back to our Star Wars Rebels coverage with episodes 21 and 22, the final episodes of season three, Zero Hour. Riki Hashi is joining me. All that more after a commercial break. We have no control over. Welcome back, friends. As you may have been hearing, maybe not, we had been doing uh, episode-by-episode coverage of Star Wars Rebels, trying to hit like two or three episodes each each week. And we were going strong for a while there, and then um, some new Star Wars content came out, and then people got sick, and people got busy, and just all sorts of things happened. So we had to put it on hold for a while, then there was so much new Star Wars content this year to uh, cover. But right now, we've got a nice lull between now and the Ahsoka show, and so me and Riki, and hopefully Sarah for a number of these episodes, are back to talk to you about Star Wars Rebels. And Riki, um, how are you feeling about coming back to this great show? How dare they? How dare they interrupt our podcast with like three or four mostly good shows? Some amazing. Right? Right? Like... Andor, I've said, is my favorite Star Wars television show, or actually television show in general now of all time. Mm -hmm. And Mandalorian has been inconsistent, but overall, I enjoy it. And Book of Boba Fett existed. Yes. And and I'm going to kind of call The Last of Us a Star Wars show just because it's Pedro Pascal doing Pedro Pascal things. But, you know. Oh, and Kenobi. How could I forget Kenobi? I loved Kenobi. (laughs) So, yes, we're back. We're back to Rebels. It's been a while. And personally, I think kind of a meme that happened in our previous coverage was I would say this is my favorite episode so far well guess what <laughs> this is my favorite episode so far the the season three this is the season three finale season three was just amazing an amazing season see and that's a very hard bar to to set because I have to say I had totally forgotten these episodes because normally when I watch them they come right after twin sons oh, which are sure, yeah. twin son which is, in many ways, I think, probably my favorite episode of Rebels. And I think having given it a couple of months to just watch these on their own, I was like, oh, wait, these are really, really good. I still think that Obi-Wan Maul fight is just the pinnacle. Sure. But uh, if these are your favorites now, then I'm all for it. I, I don't know. Like, if you asked me to actually rank them, I would have no idea where to start. And you're right. Like, uh-huh. Twin Sons, the Maul... Obi-Wan interactions are amazing. And of course, uh, what is it? Twilight of the Apprentice, the season two yep. finale with Ahsoka uh, and Vader confronting each other, seeing each other for the first time since the end of the Clone Wars is amazing. And so this episode or these episodes, like it's a two-parter, zero hour part one and part two. They're very different because those two deal heavily in the Jedi aspect Mm -hmm. and the history and the connections to other star wars media and franchises this one stands on its own this is like really what rebels is about to me yeah so that's what i love it for yeah it really is and it's i will say now uh we're gonna have spoilers for these episodes if you haven't watched but you're planning to maybe hit pause and come back if you haven't watched and you don't think you're going to watch, don't worry. We'll give you a full summary. This is a great way to kind of get caught up on all the things happening so you're ready for the Soka show. Because we're definitely going to be kind of focusing in that. 
direction as one of our focuses. Um, but And if you've seen it, of course, feel free to listen along. And I think you're right. I think I love the Jedi. I love the Sith. But I do really enjoy that we're getting more and more content. And Andor and Mandalorian have been great for this as well. That mostly leaves that stuff out. That is much more about the things happening. And I think this one doubly so because I think it's easy to think that the Rebellion was just this bunch of like random people doing random things that didn't really matter until Luke, Leia, and Han showed up and saved the day. And, you know, if you go deeper, I think it's easy to see that's not the case. But this really gives us so much of that including seeing so much of the the fleet coming together and 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 eventually winding up on Yavin Yavin 4 and and that especially is just such a high moment of like I remember I got chills the first time I heard that of like oh okay now we are now we have like locked the legos in place <laughs> connecting this era to the movies and and now we're building towards episode 4 a new hope right i mean let there's stuff I do want to talk about, but I guess we should open with the summary. Yes. Yeah. Let me do that first. So here's the summary from Wikipedia and I'll kind of add editorially as is appropriate. Various rebel cells begin gathering in Adelon to prepare for the attack on Lothal. Adelon is the um, kind of secret place where they, they have found to gather. It's where the Bendu is and all that sort of stuff. Thrawn is aware of the rebel plans and tells Governor Price and Grand Moff Tarkin that, quote, the real performance is about to begin and he's already planned a trap for them. Callus tries to warn the rebels, but is captured by Thrawn. Thrawn traces Callus's tr transmission and determines the rebels' base location is at Adalon. And he does that through, I think, one of the best illustrations of how he uses art in a really powerful way. Uh, just a, it's a great little Thrawn moment. Mm. Thrawn sends his fleet to Adalon, which includes two interdictor cruisers. With the interdictors in orbit, it is impossible for rebel ships to escape, and the fleet is forced to fight a losing battle against the Imperials. Knowing that their only chance is to send someone out to summon the rest of the rebel fleet, Commander Sato sacrifices himself by crashing into Constantine's interdictor, giving Ezra a window to escape. On Adalon, Kanan attempts to ask the Bendu for help, but the Bendu is reluctant due to its neutral role. Kanan then accuses the Bendu of being a coward, which angers the Bendu, and it disappears. In hyperspace, Ezra contacts Mon Mothma for help, but she's unable to send reinforcements due to fear of them getting caught in another of Thrawn's traps. With no option left, Ezra decides to ask Sabine, going, Sabine for help. With, with the battle going poorly, the rebels are forced to retreat back to their base on Adalon and activate its shield generator, protecting them from the Imperial fleet's bombardment. Thrawn responds by sending a ground force to assault the base. Ezra reaches Sabine and convinces her and Rao to lead a small Mandalorian force to destroy the remaining inter interdictor cruiser, which will allow the rebels to escape. Thrawn's forces breach the base defenses, but before he can capture the rebels, the Bendu intervenes, attacking the Imperial forces and distracting them long enough for the rebels to evacuate, but attacks them as well. At the same time, Ezra and Sabine destroy the interdictor. Callus escapes imprisonment and ejects in an escape pod to be picked up by the ghost crew. The rebel fleet then escapes. Back on the surface, Thrawn in incapacitates the Bendu, who warns Thrawn that it had already foreseen his defeat. Refusing to believe this, Thrawn attempts to kill the Bendu personally, but it disappears before the shot could hit it. The remaining rebel fleet leaves to rendezvous with the rest of the rebellion at Yavin 4, pers Yavin 4, and Hera promises to help Sabine and the Mandalorians on an upcoming mission. Ezra is worried about the massive defeat the rebellion has suffered, 
but Canaan points out that it is in fact a victory since they escaped. He then tells Ezra that he foresees a future where everybody is free, but that they will have to fight to make it happen. And this is the last episode to take place in 2 BBY, uh, two years before the Battle of Yavin. Yavin. So yeah, um, a lot happens. Uh, where do you want to jump in first? I think I want to start uh, with the whole greater rebellion thing that you mentioned about making that connection to A New Hope and to Yavin. Like, mm-hmm. we, we physically reach it at the end. And then in this episode, we also get to see the character of Jan Dodonna, who is the general who commands the base on Yavin um, yep. in that movie, right? So we get that connection. We see his fleet. He's got a couple of... Um, I think they're frigates, assault frigates, and like the yep. blockade runners. So now we are also really starting to see the breadth of the rebellion. Like, so far, we've really only been focused on this one cell, Phoenix Squadron. But now we're introduced to Jan Dodonna. He's got a fleet, and we see a number of ships, and we finally start to see, like, okay, this this is, in fact, like, building to more than just rebels more than just like isolated freedom fighters it's an actual movement that is coming together yeah it's really powerful and it's everything from mon mothma having her concerns but also the reminder that she's not in control of everything and that others are coming from other directions and um it, it, it really is just a wonderful thing to get to see and to me it shows how much care they have because i think with every prequel there's always this concern about how is this all going to fit together. And, you know, Rebels, I think, like a lot of other prequel Star Wars things, you know, raises some questions about, okay, this doesn't seem to quite exactly fit. But but for the most part, I think it does a good job. And this is really the high point of that. Yeah. What, what this does for me is it not necessarily corrects, the, not that it was wrong, but really fills in the gaps of... One of the issues I always had with A New Hope, which which was how small the rebellion seemed, right? Because that right. base on Yavin, when the Death Star shows up, all they have is X-Wings and Y-Wings, like a couple of squadrons of fighters. And it's like, how are you going to defeat like even one Star Destroyer, let alone an entire Imperial Navy? But right. I think the, the picture now that we get is that basically... As also in Rogue One, right? Because the leadership met on Yavin to discuss the Death Star, and then many of them said, nope, we're out, and they scattered. Right. So the idea is that the rebellion leadership met, but then they all scattered, so there wasn't really that centralized force at Yavin, but there was some important leadership still there, and that that was what was at stake. Right, and you do see that, um, I guess the implication is that the Death the Death Star being destroyed is what brings them back together. Yes. Because you do see a lot of those ships fleeing from uh, Hoth early in the next movie. Yeah, and then at the end of Empire, you definitely see, like, what is, what is to be the re- rebel fleet that assaults the second Death Star, right? Like, the, the pieces of mm-hmm. that are there. And so that's what I like about material like Rebels, where we, we do see... You know, because I love starships and starfighters. So we see those different starships and starfighters present that will be yeah. there in future battles. But but the, the idea is that these individual leaders, whether they're generals, admirals, or whatever, they have their small cell, but they are afraid to bring them together, like, as you said, until the Death Star is destroyed. And that becomes like a very symbolic rallying cry 
that we don't have to hide anymore. We can take this battle directly to them. Right. No, I think that's very true. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about how all this plays out. As well as the fact that, you know, we've been setting up this um, tension, but like that the, the Mandalorians are kind of a neutral party who's leaning a little bit towards our heroes. And so having them come back and join, I also thought was just really powerful. Yeah, well, that, yeah, it's Clan uh, clan Ren, Sabine's clan. Right. But they do mention that they are still in conflict. That they, they, I think they do call it a civil war with Clan Saxon on Mandalore, even right. though Gar Saxon was, I think, killed in this series, right, earlier. Um, that yeah. they, they, they still have to kind of clean up his family and his troops. Right, exactly. Yeah, and so and we'll see, again, that all just plants seeds. That's what we're going to see later in Mandalorian, of course, and all that. One little character moment that I, I want to I want to use as a way to start talking about General Thrawn, but I think itself mm. is a beautiful moment um, because it kind of illustrates what Thrawn has had to deal with throughout all of this, because we do see a lot of Thrawn's military genius here and that one of his big problems, again, I'm not, I'm talking about it from the perspective of here's the, the strategic flaws he's dealing with. I'm not admiring him. I think there's a whole conversation about, like, is Thrawn an antihero? Is he a villain? I think in this, is he is very much clearly a villain. But throughout, <coughs> throughout, he's had this running rivalry with Admiral Constantine, <laughs> and Constantine is clearly inferior to him in every way. Constantine knows this, and Constantine is constantly bucking against that. And what they're setting up there is, uh, is and, and, and and so how that plays out is that when Constantine sees that uh, Sato, who is uh, the, the kind of commander of Phoenix Squadron, who has defeated um, uh, Constantine himself a number of times, Constantine moves his interdictor cruiser to intercept Sato and Sato's moving forward because he, as he says, he won't let Thrawn get the glory. Yes. And of course, what happens is he's pushed out of... Uh, position and then Sato crashes into him and um it in so doing destroys the cruiser but even before that had happened the cruiser being out of position is what allows Ezra to to and Sabine to escape and it, it's just kind of a fun moment it's Constantine's end and it's the perfect end for him as a person who's constantly having to, to fight against the authority but I also just thought it was a great illustration of this is what happens in military dictatorships this is what happens when military advancement has a lot to do with who says the right things and military punishment is a lot who challenges the established ideas and who and also who screws up is punishable by death. Mm -hmm. And so the the need for individual glory, the need to wrap yourself in that is very much exactly what he would expect from from Constantine. And and so see, it, it was both kind of like a. Just a fun moment and a, a nice way to explain how they win, but also I just thought like a really nice illustrative moment of how the Empire works. And there was a great quote by Thrawn uh, shortly before that, where um, he's got Agent Callus after he captured him, you know, trying to send a transmission to the Rebels. He's got him on his bridge as a prisoner, and he's kind of doing mm -hmm. that gloating, I'm going to let you watch while I kill your friends thing. Right. Um, and... Callus is constantly like needling at Thrawn while in while in manacles, and at one point Thrawn says to him, "I do not require glory, only results for my emperor." 
So, right, that is exactly what you're saying about Constantine is hungry for glory. Thrawn doesn't care about glory. He only cares about getting results, meaning defeating the rebels in this case. Right. But I also thought it was interesting that he said only results for my emperor, right? Not mm -hmm. empire, but specifically the figure of the emperor. I, I thought that was very interesting. It really is. I think this is where we are really seeing TV Thrawn differ quite distinctly from the novel's Thrawn. Yes. Um, which are being written at a kind of similar time, and it's interesting, but... Because now the second set of novels, the canon novels about Thrawn, is really where you get him being very critical of the Emperor. Like, and he him talking about how he thinks the Empire is a necessary evil, and he's trying to subvert funds away from the Death Star project towards his TIE Interceptor project and things like that. And here, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Well, he, and, he is. I mean, the TIE Defender project. Right. Um, like, he definitely... I don't think... The Death Star specifically mentioned, maybe it is later on, we'll see. I, I can't quite remember. But there, yeah, there is definitely that conflict yeah. of the funding. I, I think there is, but I think you don't, he is very explicitly feeling like the Death Star is a terrible, terrible idea and a sign of how the Emperor is a bad military leader in the novels. Yeah. That I think we never get yeah. to that extent here. Um, uh, but yeah, and so it's just a great illustration of him. Um, and that's kind of a good entryway. Thrawn is obviously getting a lot of attention these days. We're going to see him in the Ahsoka show. We know who's cast as him. It is the same voice actor, which is mm -hmm. awesome. La <laughs> Lars Mikkelsen. Yep. Uh, from a lot of other things fame as well. Uh, what do you think about kind of what we see of Thrawn in this episode? This Thrawn, you know, you said earlier, he is, whether he's an anti-hero or a villain, it's, it's so difficult for me because... I, I think I've said this. I like Thrawn. I might even say that I love Thrawn in a fandom, in a fictional character way. Like, I think he is yeah. one of the best characters we have in Star Wars. And you cannot ignore the fact that he is evil, that he commits acts of evil. And again, that, yep. as you mentioned, that varies based on whether you're talking about his character from this Rebels or from the novels and um and that makes it even i think it makes it even more complicated to be a fan of thrawn because it's like there do seem to be several different versions of him even though they are right. supposed to be the same character and so like how do we interpret that i don't i don't know how to answer that we have to each of us as a fan has to answer that for ourselves but mm -hmm. uh, there's no denying that he is he is compelling like the acting Lars mickles acting in this is great and you're not, I'm not rooting for him because I don't want the Rebels to lose, but I am still kind of uh, intrigued and excited by the the way that he uh, tactically outsmarts people and the way that he figures yeah. stuff out. I think that's what makes him so interesting. Part of how, so for example, that finding the Rebel base, it's because he, he notices that the trajectory that Callus sent his message on and the trajectory that the fleet that's coming to help intersect at a point and that because he has studied the art of other people in the area that like they their art indicates that there's a star there that has been kind of erased but from imperial maps and rebel maps because of the, the presence of the bendu mm -hmm. and so that's just a it, it's, it's a small moment it's five seconds and it's gone but it is is 
it, it really shows the kind of tactical genius and the way he uses like when you say someone uses art to understand everything about a species, a lot of art historians probably get really happy, but it'll also be like, yeah, it's not quite that simple. And yeah. it's a point that they go into in much more detail in the original novels, the Heir to the Empire novels. I think it's kind of brushed over for the most part in this because it's hard to kind of do without a lot of exposition. But this one scene was a really nice way to kind of lampshade that and be like, this is the kind of thinking he brings. Yes, uh, this is much better than I have studied the art of your species, so I know exactly what military tactic you will use. Now, he does mention when uh, Admiral Sato makes a military maneuver, he does mention, I think, the, the tactic being used in the planet that Sato is from. But it, mm-hmm. it isn't like I can predict your exact movement. It's like I've studied you as well. Like he studied Sato's tactics. Right. Definitely, definitely. Um, one last thing I want to say about Thrawn is that for those who are wanting to read the books, one of my personal favorites of the Thrawn novels is one of the newer ones, Thrawn Alliances. And in that book, I'll spoil as little as I can, but I'll just say the book happens in two parts. One part is when he is on a mission with Anakin, and then later he's on a mission with Vader. And in that mission with Vader... Vader and others are constantly needling him because he had a recent great failure. And the failure is this battle that we just saw in Zero Hour. So that's kind of a cool connection there. Uh, Let's talk about the Bendu, because he has been one of my favorite characters. And I I really like what winds up happening with him and and like kind of some of the commentary that they make with him. how, How do you feel about how the Bendu story played out? I, hmm, I don't think I liked it as much, mm-hmm. maybe as much as you, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like, the reason I didn't like it was that it, it the Bendu takes, like, this total neutrality stance in mm-hmm. this, like, I'm not going to take sides, like, I'm not your, I'm not your friend, I'm not your ally, speaking to Kane and Jer- Jairus. And, but then he kind of does, you know, like, yes, he does destroy, he does destroy some rebel ships as well. So like, maybe he's being balanced, but I don't, it feels like Kanan manipulated him into the situation of getting Mm. mad and like having the storm that helps them escape. And I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure that I believe that the Bendu was, could be tricked by Kanan into doing this. So it seems intentional, but Mm. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think I just have a different take on it. First of all, I 100% believe, agree, and I think this is intentional, that the Bendu represents that kind of, I'm a centrist, I don't care about politics, or both sides are equally bad, I'm just going to be neutral position, that I think the show is very clearly saying is nonsense, is, I would use a stronger word, but there's a family-friendly podcast, mm-hmm. um, that he's clearly saying, like, look, when there is oppression and an oppressor, you doing nothing is just helping the oppressor and you're going to be in danger from it too. But also like you have this power, this is something you can do to help. And I really like the Bendu as a force power, like a force user, but so much more than just like, you know, uh, an individual Jedi or Sith who stands apart from the Jedi or Sith and stands apart from light side and dark side. And I think he really helps to broaden the mythology and the lore But I think the idea that the flip side of that is this kind of 
nonsense neutrality of I'm not going to take a side, even though good and evil are pretty darn clear here. And I, I guess I think you're right. It's a little bit manipulative, especially when he calls him a coward. And that part, I, I, I rolled my eyes at a bit. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to make I, you mad. <laughs> I, I guess that I took it men. as he, he made him mad. But then like that got him to actually pay attention to the arguments Kanan was making. Yeah. And that on some level, he did believe that this is what he should be doing. I don't think he's even he or she that this is what the Bendo Bendu should be doing. Um, and especially the way he talks to Thrawn at the end of like saying, I ha I have foreseen your, your downfall. Oh. Um, lets me feel like, yeah, he, he hurt some rebels too. I don't know if that was intentional or just because it's, you know, you ask an elephant to come intervene with a bunch of ants on the floor. Like it's he's hard for him to tell yeah. what he's doing. Um, or maybe it is his just idea of balance. So I've got to help the rebels escape, but sure. also not be too far on one side. Um, but I, I think I, I liked the Bendu's character. I think the Bendu is totally wrong here. And I just, I like the way Kanan calls him out and that mm -hmm. it to some extent works. What the, what this reminds me, what this situation reminds me of is the prophecy of the chosen one, you know, mm -hmm. Anakin Skywalker, they constantly are making reference to the chosen one will bring balance to the force. And the Jedi Council thinks that this is a good thing. And my argument has always been that the Jedi at that time period are ascendant. They are all powerful compared to the Sith. They think the Sith are mm. extinct. So what do you think it means to bring balance in this situation? It means you're going to get knocked down a peg, right? And so the, so this the Bendu's neutrality here, instead of like in neutrality, I would think would be to just withdraw completely from the situation. But his neutrality mm -hmm. takes on an offensive neutrality of, I'm just going to destroy everything. But the Empire in this situation is ascendant. It is more powerful than the rebels. So by destroying everything, quote unquote, equally, he's really helping the rebels to bring balance in this situation, to bring them both down to the same low level in mm -hmm. this battle. See, this is one of those times where I wish that there was more consistency especially between what's on screen and in the novels, because that has always been my understanding of it as well, that the balance was actually, because to some extent they reduce it to, um, you know, two Jedi as uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda and two Sith. Yeah. Um, Palpatine and Vader. And of course we know there's a bunch more running around on both sides. I forget which one of the novels, but there's one of the novel that goes deeper into this that actually posits a very different interpretation. And it's not specifically talking about uh, Vader. I think it's in the High Republic. And listeners, if you know what I'm talking about, please correct me. But where those Jedi are talking about how... Um, and I, I actually think the part of it's from a, a Sith perspective, maybe. So I, I, I'm maybe getting a couple different works confused. No, no, no. It is from the High Republic perspective. But the idea being that they talk about how the Jedi work with the Force and try to sort of like you know, swim in the stream of the Force and its balance. The dark side seek to actively corrupt the Force and to, like, grab hold of it and twist it to where it wants to, where they want it to go. And so from this perspective, eliminating the dark side, eliminating the Sith, is bringing the Force back into balance. I think that that is what Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and Mace Windu and all of them thought the prophecy meant hmm. and i think it's an interesting question to know like i 
I would actually be happiest if the idea is this is theology, this is mythology, and different people have different ideas. Like some people think balance to the force means balance between light side and dark side. Other think it means it, destroying the dark side entirely. And I'm 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 both enjoying that, but I I think this conversation you are having it's kind of like the back and forth discussions of Thrawn. The fact that we have multiple sources that don't agree with each other and we've never had that disagreement really addressed in a way where in the same work, two different characters propose these two different theories and, and discuss them is, I think, kind of frustrating to me. And it makes me once again wish that they had done more to resolve, you know, did Anakin fulfill the prophecy? Mm-hmm. Did Vader fulfill the prophecy? Like, does, is the prophecy fulfilled at the end of Revenge of the Sith? Is the prophecy fulfilled at the end of Return of the Jedi? Right. Is it never fulfilled? Is it, I just is don't it know. Rey? Does, yeah. Does Rey fulfill the prophecy? Like, yeah. Absolutely. So, and, and so you mentioned like the Bendu and Thrawn meeting at the end, which to me was very interesting because if if I'm remembering right, up till then, Kanan and Ezra were the only characters to speak to the Bendu, right? So, yeah. And then the Bendu appears and obviously like everyone sees him, but then he and Thrawn directly have a conversation. You know, Thrawn and I don't believe that Thrawn is a force user. I'm sure there are some fans out there who want to believe that or like have some have some fanfic. But it is interesting to me that Thrawn gets to have a conversation with the Bendu here. And mm-hmm. seems to speak to some importance of Thrawn yeah. in, in the whole galactic mythology. Even if he's mm-hmm. not a Force user, he uh, he's a figure to be reckoned with. And the, the specific quote, like, I'm not going to spoil the end of Rebels and the end, question mark, of Thrawn. But the Bendu says to him in this episode, I see your defeat. Like many arms surrounding you in a cold embrace. And if you have watched the whole series and know how it ends, that then it's very fitting. And if you haven't, yeah. then look forward to it. And I don't think that really spoils anything specific. But it's very and it's I a very of, fitting line that makes it makes it clear that they had already kind of plotted out what was going to happen at this point. Well that's what I was gonna say is I, I, I wonder if they had plotted it out and so they wrote this. Or if they wrote this and then we're like, okay, oh. so how do we end this in a way that fulfills what they said? <laughs> sure, um, I could, could you know, it might have been they had like a vague idea, but then they yeah, got more yeah, specific yeah. by the end. But who knows? Fair enough. Uh, again, I Filoni and Fat Filoni has given so many interviews where he's answered so many of these questions, and I wish they were all kind of compiled somewhere. But if anyone who's seen all of those knows the answer to that, again, please let us know. But but whichever way it is, here's the thing. Me personally, like I have a lot of criticism of J.J. Abrams as a creator of like good interesting mystery boxes that once you open it don't make sense and like the the thing is that J.J. Abrams doesn't seem to know how to you know finish something Mm -hmm. to me like this is a good example of someone who has like set something up and then finishes it well whichever like whether they knew the finish already or that they looked at this line and say okay well we have to finish in a way that's consistent and i love that to me that has that agree that has been something about star wars that they have been doing a pretty good job with with a lot there's a lot of material out there for star wars and they are doing mm-hmm. 
in my opinion, a good job of connecting some pieces and loose threads and even explaining things. The fact that Rogue One yep. is an entire movie to explain why you can blow up the Death Star by firing a <laughs> photon torpedo in that one place. It's yep. amazing. Yeah, it, it's been really well done. And I will... I, I have a further thought on that that I will share in a very brief spoiler section at the end of this episode. Mm, okay. Um, but yeah, what else do we want to talk about? Um, I want to briefly kind of go back to mm -hmm. the character of Sato, Jun Sato. And mm. I think it's important for me to address this as a, uh, I, as a Japanese person. I, I had a question that I was going to ask you off air if it was oh, a topic you wanted to address no, that I think you're about to get into. Let's but talk go about ahead. it. Let's talk about it. So... You know, Japan does not exist in Star Wars, but Sato is a very common Japanese name. And I believe right. um, the character is voiced by Kiyoni Young, who is a Hawaiian-born person of Japanese descent. So mm -hmm. clearly, like, he's coded as right. Japanese, you know, whatever that means in Star Wars. And and he has an accent that I would, I, that yes. at least to my ears, sounds like... Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like Japanese, and it sounds like a much more respectful portrayal of a Japanese accent than we got, for example, with the Trade Federation, which yeah, is yeah. horrifically racist. I mean, to me, it sounds like someone kind of trying to pay respects to or homage to George Takei, in mm, some sense. Yeah, I can see that. So, yeah. So you have a Japanese admiral who, in this battle... Uh, crashes his ship into the opposing ship in order to create a tactical opening, which uh, was a thing that happened during World War II called kamikaze, or in English it's called kamikaze, of when the fighter planes would crash into United States warships in order to try mm -hmm. to inflict as much damage as possible. And it was a, um, it was a military tactic. It was a decision that the higher-ups made and ordered their pilots to do. And because of kind of the fanaticism and call it brainwashing of the military and the pilots, they did it. They did it for yeah. the glory of the Japanese Empire. And I, to me, like that is a as a dark history. Like the whole thing of Imperial Japan is a dark part of our history. And this, these actions of making your soldiers do something like this is, I think, it's disgraceful. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was difficult for me to watch this and not think of that, to see the Japanese coded character taking this action. Right. It was done in a more respectful way than, mm -hmm. uh, than you know, other things have done with a similar thing. And I do think it was interesting that the two, the pilots or whatever on the bridge stayed with him and they said, you know, Admiral, we, we'd like to stay at our posts or whatever. And so I, I think that made it, it better call it like softened the blow uh, and shared the responsibility, mm -hmm. I guess. But it still wasn't my favorite moment for those reasons, you know. I I, I can see that. I'm really glad you brought it up. As I said, I, I was thinking about it, but I wanted to kind of check in with you first before. Um, so I'm really glad you just brought it up. For me, watching it, like on the one level, it felt like, and I think it's kind of what you were saying. They did it very differently than the, the, the history that you were discussing in that yes, yes. it is Sato's decision. No one orders him to do it. And he specifically tells everyone on the ship to get off yeah. and that he, he wants to do it for, um, for, for uh, a very strategic reason that works. Um, do you think it would have been if they had had it be a different commander who was commanding that ship who wasn't Japanese coded? 
would you have felt a lot better about that scene? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, just yeah. look at The Last Jedi, where uh, Admiral Holdo, Holdo yeah. does a very similar thing, right? So I, I think there are some things where it's it's not that you can't do certain things with certain characters, but yeah, I don't know who made this decision and why, but maybe like there needs to be some questions in an interview, like, hey, why was this decision made? Maybe there are, yeah. but... And the other thing I will say about it is that in this case, it is a good sound tactical decision, right? Like it succeeds. Mm -hmm. He draws out Constantine's interdictor, which they need to do to break the blockade. I wish that maybe he had said something like, like that's Constantine's ship. Like I know I can egg him on or something like that, like mm. to, to bring specific attention that it, that he knows what he's doing. And right. You know, what I will say about the kamikaze in World War II is that, uh, in my opinion, they were not sound tactical decisions. Like, it, it, it doesn't yeah. really make sense. It was done, in my opinion, by the leadership to, like, just save face and or, like, inflict as much damage as possible to the U.S. without caring for, you know, their own troops. And yeah. we, we, we use the phrase, war is hell, but I think it's incumbent on leadership <clears throat> to to care to some degree like you you know people are going to die in war but i think if you don't show that you care about the lives of your troops they are not going to fight as hard for you yeah i i think that's very true and i think that's bringing it all the way back around that goes back to you know life in a military where if you make a mistake vader or someone else might just kill you yeah you know that's not a and interestingly there is in the original thrawn novels Heir to the Empire, a scene where one officer shows gross incompetence and a refusal to kind of listen and learn, and Thrawn does have him killed. But oh, in doing yes. so, he he's constantly reminding people that he thinks Vader was mistaken, and that on many occasions, when people make mistakes, but he's able to ascertain, like, this is a good faith mistake or something out of their control, he doesn't harm them the way Vader would have often done. And even in one case... Someone screws up, but was clearly yes. showing inventive thinking. Yes. Thrawn rewards him. Yeah, it was uh, Luke Skywalker escapes their tractor right. beam. And he goes to the tractor beam operator and says, explain to me what happened. And this guy thinks he's yeah. dead. Like, he thinks he's going to be killed. But he explains. He's like, he did this. Like, I wasn't expecting it. But then I tried this, thinking, you know, maybe I could recapture him with the tractor beam. Unfortunately, it didn't yeah. work. And Thrawn says, okay. I like the innovation, you know, the quick mind thinking you showed there. Continue working on that so that next time the rebels try this, we don't we don't let them yeah. escape. And yeah, like he rewards him basically with the, like showing that respect on the bridge and, and it, giving him a job, I guess, a future job. And there's a great line in it. I forget exactly the wording of it, but but Captain Pallion, who's who's basically his kind of second command in our point of view character. He basically says that, like, that was the moment where he knew that Vader's influence was fully oh. gone. This was now Thrawn's fleet. Yes. And it's because Thrawn has, has shown that the days of you were in command when something bad happened, therefore it's your fault, therefore I'm going to kill you, are, 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 are over with for good. Yeah. And that, that's exactly the Thrawn that gives, you know, some fans chills, right? And like, oh, yeah, I really like this yeah. character. And you, we get less of that in Rebels, so that there is a dis there does seem to be some yeah. distinction. And I also appreciate the way you talked about liking someone in fandom. Like, I enjoy watching the Purple Man on screen. I watch Jessica Jones again and again. 
I think mm. Jessica Jones herself is an amazing character. It's incredibly well written, but a big part of it is David Tennant is terrifying and enthralling, oh, and you yeah. want to keep watching. And I think that's what a good villain often does. And and Thrawn is very much that as well. Yeah, and and just so excited. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know that there could have been anyone else that they could get. But the fact that they did get Lars Mikkelsen to continue portraying him in live action mm-hmm. is obviously great for us as fans, like old yeah. fans. I think it's going to be great for new fans, too, to if they haven't engaged with us media or don't like cartoons or whatever, right? Like, now more people get to experience Lars Mikkelsen as Thrawn. Like, I'm yeah. happy for you all. <laughs> no, I think it's definitely true. I think it's definitely true. I'm a little nervous about the blue makeup, but I think they can make it work, so... We will see. Oh, yeah. There's been some bad, in my opinion, bad, like, fan edits uh-huh. where he's got, like, stubble with the blue makeup. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not yeah. Thrawn. But I do really appreciate, uh, you, you to go back, you bring up the point with Sato and the um, uh, and, and the way he takes out that cruiser. Because I think, yeah, to me, that's the kind of discourse that I want to see more of. And I think... Um, I, yeah, I, I, like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not going to throw it out completely and be like, this is terrible and yeah. racist. I just, like, if I had the opportunity to talk to some of the creators, I would have questions yeah, about it. no, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And I I wonder if it was the kind of thing where they just, where it just didn't occur to them that it would be a thing, or if yeah, they yeah. thought it would be kind of like an appropriate nod to the culture and tradition because they just, they know mm-hmm. that's a thing that, that Japanese pilots did and they don't really know much of the history and behind it. And again, right. it's just one more reason to have diverse people in your writer's room or at least people who you're consulting with because you know maybe they could have gotten a different perspective but as i said yeah the portrayal I mean, of a japanese coded character is still so much better than the trade federation that that alone feels like a big step and and perspective on cultural issues like is never monolithic like i am only speaking to my own personal opinions as someone who has grown up as as a japanese mm-hmm. person in a family that's japanese but even like other Japanese people like in fandom may have a different opinion on yeah. that. And of course, like historically, I am sure that there are people in Japan who think the kamikaze were like honorable soldiers and like res- they respect their sacrifice, right. right? I I think it's disgraceful and sad that they were ordered to do that and that they chose to do that. And I, I think that they're, you know, like they've never been in the military but and it's complicated, but there are situations where people in the military will tell you that you should no longer follow orders Mm. like unethical orders and i just cannot imagine being in that situation it's hard to imagine and i cannot say for certain you know like if you were in that put in that position what you would do like i don't think it's fair for me in such a safe place to say something like that but i i don't like it is that's fair that's fair and again i'm really glad you brought it up I think in terms of the space battle itself, there's not, it, it just looked awesome and I was so glad to see it. I was glad, I think yeah. we don't often get capital ships fighting with each other. And so getting to see the 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 Star Destroyers taking on these frigates and these cruisers and, and, and pretty much, you know, beating the heck out of them. Um, it was it was great to watch because I think that's a sign of uh, the combat that we don't get to see very often. Uh, and, and of course we just had yeah. all these great fighter, fighter chases going on and... Yeah, it was just, and a lot of other nice tie-ins, like the, the 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 general who comes back, who we said will be the general who leads the briefing on Yavin in A New Hope. He, the ships he's piloting are are some bigger ships, but also are the Y-wing fighters that Ezra and the rest of them helped steal way back when. 
which is another nice kind of yeah, tie-in like, of it all. Everything fits in nicely. That's yeah. for sure. Um, the, you know, it's Star Wars. Like most most space combat media handles it this way, but it's just like, why is it usually two dimensional? Yeah. Right. Other than the fighters, the fighters often like weave in and out, but the capital ships just seem to always like broadside each other in the in two dimensions. Yeah. yeah so it's nice to see more of that. Um, there's two quick things I want to do uh, before we end this episode. Um, one deal with some sad news. The other was the spoiler section I mentioned. Uh, but before that, Ricky, is there anything else about these episodes you want to mention? Uh. I there like I had a I wrote down some of the quotes that I mentioned, but I think to me my favorite mm, favorite I don't know favorite quote favorite part of this episode was actually the very beginning, where the rebels they haven't they don't know that they have been discovered yet so they are actually planning an assault on Lothal mm-hmm. to destroy the Tie Defender factories, and Ezra is talking to Kanan, and he says like I can't believe. You all did this because Ezra is from Lothal. That's where he was born and grew up. So he is really excited to like go back and free his mm-hmm. people or inflict some damage on the Empire on that planet. And he he's thanks Kanan and says, thank you for everything you've done, right? Like and, and for bringing this all together. And then Kanan had such a beautiful moment where he, as as his mentor, gives credit back to Ezra and said, you, you did this too. You're a part of this too. I think that's such a beautiful moment for a mentor to his mentee to like give them credit and and bring them into the success. And I thought that was important, but then even more important after that, Ezra, Ezra says, because he's like talking about training him as a Jedi too. And he says, I don't mean about the force about life about how to be a good person. That's what you've taught me. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know. Uh, it, it just gets to me. It's such a beautiful moment between those two characters and what they have been through and how they truly like have helped each other to learn. It really is. And I think it hits on a couple of different levels. First of all, it is a marked contrast to the relationship between Thrawn and Constantine or either of them with Admiral Price or with Collis, you know, who... You know, all of those are relationships between superiors and and lower officers, and they're all fraught with tension and rivalry and and a lack of credit and uh, the like. Mm-hmm. And and so the Kanan Ezra thing is so different. The other part of it is, this is a sign of attachment. They have an emotional bond. Like, can you imagine Obi Wan or Anakin saying something like this to each other? It never happens. And Mm. It, it they've never really kind of lampshaded this and so maybe they're not going to go forward with this but I have always felt that it is fairly intentional that Kanan and Ezra like Mace Windu would think they're horrible Jedi they'd keep doing all the things that break the rules you know I mean Kanan literally has a, a girlfriend or a spouse who we know he um, you know he uh, they treat Ezra like family it's all of these things that the Jedi were not supposed yeah. to do and this to me is just such a beautiful underlining of that of like, yeah, th- we're, we're noticing that the Jedi got wiped out and maybe some new directions is important. And I think that is, I think it's something that's been carried on in a lot of the other media and, and movies and shows and stuff like that. And so t- 
to me that I'm really glad you mentioned that scene because to me that was really one of the moments where I was like, oh, these are not Jedi the way that the Old Republic and the 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 Palpatine days were. Yeah, well, when Ezra returns with the Mandalorian reinforcements, you know, he went to Sabine and came back with reinforcements. Sabine, you know, has been a main character, a part of this crew, but she's been missing for however many episodes dealing with stuff on Mandalore. And when Ezra calls them and says, hey, I'm back with friends, Kanan says, looks like the family's together again. Like he uses those words like unironically, this is a family and it's. You know, people call shows like this found family, and that is absolutely the truth. And that's how the characters act. That's how it's all mm-hmm. written. I think that's why we like it. And you're right. Like, the the Jedi, I think Kanan and Ezra, their relationship, they, they talk about this often in their training of, like, this, you know, this was how the Jedi do it, but now nah, I'm not gonna. Like, we're just gonna find our own yeah. path. Yeah, it's really well done. Well, I'm so glad we got to talk about this episode. There's a lot of great stuff. Definitely suggest people check it out. And I'm really glad you're talking about Rebels again. Uh, I'm going to say one bit of sad news that it, that is connected to Rebels that I know uh, Ricky's going to say more on. And then have a, a brief uh, spoiler section. And then, of course, we'll have the Patreon section at the end. Uh, the, sad new- the sad news, which many of you may have heard, is that Ray Stevenson passed away recently. He's an actor who's played a number of roles in the kind of media we love. Uh, I probably know him best because I did minute by minute coverage of Thor on the Marvel movie minute. And, uh, he plays Volstagg in that movie. And I believe in, in all of the Thor movies, um, oh, just a wonderful character actor, wonderful actor. Um, and so you probably can recognize him from Thor, but he's also been in a number of things that are connected to Star Wars and to other things geeks love. Uh, and so Ricky, I'll let you say some more about him. Yeah, I mean, relevant to Rebels, he was the voice actor for Gar Saxon, the Imperial Viceroy on Mandalore, who they defeated earlier this season. And um, he was slated, I don't know, I don't know how to phrase this, but he he is going to be in Ahsoka, in the live action Ahsoka show. He's cast in that. I think they've done principal filming. He appears in the trailer. Uh, I know Matthew, you don't you don't like to be spoiled, so I won't say like who his character is or what he's doing, but that they already have stuff. Yeah. So he he is deeply connected to Star Wars. Um, was was only fifty eight years old, mm. which I you know I just when I see ages of people who pass and it, and it's something like that, it just shocks me. And it's it's a it, it was certainly a sad day for the Star Wars community, but just. All of us in geek fandom, you mentioned Thor. I believe he was also in um, the Punisher Warzone mm, yep. movie. So just he's just been in a lot of things, which I would think means that he's a fan of these yeah. things and, and, and was a geek at heart as well. And so, yeah, it is very sad. And we wish the best to his friends and family. Definitely, definitely sad. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you brought that up. We I posted a bit about it in the Marvel Movie Minute community because of the Thor connection. But I think you're right. I I'd even really known about the Star Wars connections, so I'm so glad you brought that back up. Last thing, and this will be a brief spoiler section, I'm just going to mention something that uh, about Season 4. If you haven't seen it yet, go uh, skip ahead like 60 or 90 seconds. Spoiler in 3, 2, 1. I do think it's really interesting that the Bendu never comes back. The Bendu says, "I you can't kill me. Mm. He never comes back. And we're soon going to get a, a TV show 
about a Force user who has left the Jedi and is presumably interested in learning about perspectives on the Force outside of the Jedi and the Sith. I, I think it's a very long shot that we get the Bendu back or that we get him back, the, get the Bendu back specifically in Ahsoka. Um, actually, I checked something. Bendu is male, just uh, beyond a lot of other things, but or at least male presenting. Um, but I would be very curious to know, like, um, but I, I'd be very interested to know, like, what happened to the Bendu, you know, because because the Bendu kind of made this promise, like, I'll be back. You can't kill me. And as far as we know, never actually did anything again. <laughs> and I'd be curious to know, like, was the Bendu mm -hmm. active behind the scenes? Has the Bendu been, like, recovering and just has a very different view of time and is sometime maybe in these books or maybe even in the movies or maybe in the Ray, Ray movies coming up 15 f more years down the road, the Bendu is going to show back up again? I, he, the Bendu is such an interesting character that I hope we get, get him back at some point. Yeah. And here's the thing, the Bendu, like we use the Bendu or Bendu as this character's name, right? But I guess my question is, is, is the Bendu even a entity? I was going to say person, but like, that's, that's a weird right. word to use. Like, is the Bendu actually an individual entity, like a creature mm -hmm. or because what I think when we were introduced to him, he uses, he says something like the light, the dark, or like the Jedi, the Sith, I am what is in between. I am the Bendu. Mm. So it's not like, it doesn't even feel like it's actually his name. Although like they use it that way, like the other characters like call him right. that. But I wonder if if he's just a concept, yeah. and it's just like this is the physical manifestation of a concept. Somehow, I mean, we saw in the Clone Wars episodes uh, that when they went to this planet called Mortis, where there were living embodiments of both mm -hmm. the light side and the dark side. So for there to be, and yeah. the metaphysics of that episode have never quite matched up with a lot of the things in the show, <laughs> uh, in the in the in the canon. But yeah, it'd be interesting. No, maybe he he is kind of. Uh, an equivalent manifestation, or maybe there are many Bendu, and so you know it'll be like this particular Bendu may not come back, but others will. Um, we don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe to go to another property, maybe it's like the Q. Yeah. Right, because Q, the character Q, played by John Delancey in Star Trek, we're talking about, is a character, is like an individual being, but the Q continuum, like all exists kind of as one thing. I right. think. I don't know. They've done a lot of weird things on Star Trek. I haven't watched Picard yeah. yet. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Very interesting to see. All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, as I said, we'll have a little bit more in a Patreon section, but for those who are getting off the train now, uh, Ricky, do you say a little bit more about where people can find you? Oh, yeah. Well, I am streaming Pokemon Go Battles on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Go. And then you can find me also on Twitter at RikiPediaGo, R-I-K-I-P-E-D-I-A-G-O. And yeah, we, we hang out, have a good time. We do talk about Star Wars, Star Trek, a lot of things yeah. in addition to Pokemon. That's awesome. That's awesome. And of course, this is an Ethical Panda production. You can find all the podcasts I do on TheEthicalPanda.com. Uh, over on Superhero Ethics, we're talking about a lot of great stuff. I'm also going to be uh, doing episodes for Indiana Jones, those movies, on Binger's Assemble. 
which is a Stranded Panda podcast. I'm looking forward to talking about those. Please check out all that. And most especially, we love feedback. Uh, the most recent Superhero Ethics episode, it was really addressed two pieces of listener feedback because we had great conversations about both of them. But we got into a question about Guardians of the Galaxy and the way animals were treated in that movie. And then we got into a conversation about um, the, the, the kind of question we've been discussing for a while of does great power come with great responsibility and how do you approach that? Uh, which, spoiler, is the question I'm going to ask Riki in our Patreon section. So please give us feedback. You can find The Ethical Panda on any of the places. All that social media is down below uh, in the show notes uh, or on theethicalpanda.com. And most importantly, have a great day because we have spoken. I am what is in between. I am the Riki. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I don't I don't know about that character. Like it's it seems like they're just kind of making a lot of stuff up on the fly. <laughs> Unlike everything else in Star Wars, but <laughs> anyway, that's that's the intro to our uh, Patreon section. You patrons get to hear us still still going over that question. And I'm sure we'll come back to it, but Riki, uh I want to ask you. Does great power come with great responsibility? That's what Uncle Ben yes, says. Yes, it is. And or Aunt May are they right? But, well, are you are you asking me like philosophically, like in the real world or in comic books? Like, yeah, I, I guess I'm just saying like where where are we do you think they're right? Is that a moral precept that heroes should live by? Is a moral precept that anybody with power should live by? Uh, yes, I think it's I think it's uh, something that we should all live by, and I don't. I like in the case of the actual quote, like they use the word great. Mm -hmm. Because it's referring to Spider-Man, and he has great, you know, super, he has superpowers. Although, I guess Uncle Ben doesn't know that, but, like, it is, in the stories, it is referencing his superpowers. And how, because he has these superpowers, he has a responsibility to use them to oppose other people's superpowers, and to protect people who don't have superpowers, right? right? That, that's how I understand it in Spider-Man. And how I understand it in the world is that you and I don't have superpowers. Mm -hmm. It's arguable if we even have powers, by whatever definition. But what power we do have, what influence we do have, I think I would use the word influence. Yeah. I think we all have a responsibility to use our influence responsibly and in a positive way. And I know like when you and I have conversations about this, I'm very big on this idea that in fandom or in a community, like a gaming community, each one of us has a piece of a shared responsibility to make that fandom, make the community a good, positive, inclusive, welcoming mm -hmm. space. Obviously, like as magic judges or former magic judges, like we understand that responsibility. But I think even like what I have tried to live by is that like in a space like Twitter, on a social media space, the words that I use have impact on somebody. Like, I have followers. Yeah. They read these words, and it can change their moods. It can change their outlook on things. And I try to be very careful about what I say and how I say it for that reason and try to use my words to steer people in a more positive direction. Like, that's how I feel about that quote and how I view res the responsibility. Yeah and influence. I think that's a really good way to phrase it. And I, I especially love all the stuff about community there uh, because I like that idea that kind of 
by being a part of community, we are buying into a sense of shared community and, and shared responsibility for upholding that community. I think I have a little bit of a different spin on it because I do, I think with great power comes great responsibility can, it, it can turn into a way to bully someone in a way that I think is not the best. And I do think, mm. for example, like, I'm, I'm never a fan of, I'm not the, the biggest fan of Superman, but, you know, I know that there are uh, stories, particularly in the comics, where it talks about how he, he sometimes faces this, this constant question of, is it ever okay for him to not rush out to save the, the cat in the tree or the, the, the person who's about to, you know, be in a car crash because he wants to spend time with Lois or he wants to spend time with his family. And I think there, there's something to be said for the idea that I think this is maybe having it both ways, but I kind of feel like with great power comes great responsibility. And there is a responsibility to point that out to those who are not living up to that and with any power. But that I think also there's something to be said for we each have to individually decide how we're going to use that power um, and, mm. and when we're going to use that power and when we're going to say this isn't my battle. And I'll, I'll say, for example, for me, the rubric that I tend to use is because I think the thing that that phrase forgets, and especially people who reject that phrase can easily forget, is that there's a direct correlation so often between the fact that a person has power and the suffering that's happening that we think they should have a responsibility to to deal with, you know, and that to me often those things should be very linked, that that if you have the ability to help, you should help whoever you can, however you can, but especially you should hurt those who have who have been hurt because of the things that gave you the abilities you do. And and so example for me, as a white person, as a male presenting person, I know I have a particular level of influence that people listen to me who might not uh, in other situations and I feel a particular responsibility therefore to to speak out on issues of racism, issues on sexism. But the place where this probably comes into my life the most often is as a Christian, because I, as a Christian, am afforded a great deal of power and and of privilege. And, hmm. you know, I never have to explain why I want to take certain holidays off. I never have to explain why I've decorated my house the way I do. I have all of these things that I can just take for granted and that I can go into a room, as I often did when I was a political activist, and say... I am here as a Christian and I believe this and people take me more seriously than they would if someone said they were from a different tradition. And I don't think that's good, but I think as long as that's the case, I should do something with that. And so the corollary is for me, I particularly speak out on issues where it is other Christians who are doing the most harm around homophobia and transphobia, around anti-choice measures and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think, it, and it's kind of a corollary to what you were saying, but I think it kind of fits together in terms of that, like, we all have to figure out where where do we sit in terms of communities, in terms of responsibilities, and then, yeah, if you can, if you have the opportunity to help people, and it's not causing direct harm to you in serious ways, I think, yeah, helping people is almost always the right choice. Yeah, I, so, hmm. I mean, I, I love everything you just said, and I'm trying to, like, re refit it back in with my own mm -hmm. thinking and figure that out because when you mentioned superman let me let me start here when you mentioned superman the immediate thing i thought of was the injustice stories mm -hmm. are you familiar yep. with these um this was like a video game and then they made a comic book and i think even like an animated movie series where 
the basic premise is that Superman becomes evil. Superman becomes a dictator. And it could be argued that he is following this philosophy, that he has the greatest power. So he has the greatest responsibility and he uses that to what he do, what he believes is the right right thing to achieve world peace, which is for him to become the dictator of the entire planet because he has he he has this vision and he's like I'm tired of letting other people fight over these right. things like I'm right you're all wrong you have to listen to me now <clears throat> and he's it could be argued that he's take like he's taking the ultimate responsibility with the ultimate power I think he's wrong right like that's that's not how I think that philosophy mm-hmm. works so if I were to like amend my own philosophy I think I have a pretty libertarian point of view on this in terms of ultimately we are only responsible for ourselves and we should only be responsible for ourselves we should not abuse our power like in any way to like impose our will on other people like let other people make their decisions as long as they are also are not imposing their will and harming people yeah, I think I think there's a lot of truth there. I think I don't go quite as far with a libertarian, but I think it, it to me it's just the, the question of agency becomes really really important. And so, to me, there's when someone else is taking agency and requesting help, there's a there's a responsibility to help. I I think when yes, that becomes yeah. the I know best, so I know what all these people need, even if they don't think that that's what they need. I I think you're right. That I guess that to me is one of the the danger poles. And the other one I was talking about is when it becomes so much about self-sacrifice that it just becomes you, you're you're losing out on your responsibility to yourself because you're burning out. And I, I talked more about this on the, the podcast I did with Paul, but for me, where a lot of this comes from is having worked in the nonprofit industry at a time when, you know, if you went to a movie on a Friday night instead of going to a protest or a march or a meeting, people looked at you like you didn't care enough about the cause. And completely oh, wow. coincidentally... There was no one in the rooms I was working in who had been in the movement for more than five years because everybody burnt out. So, yeah, mm. I think it's it's I, I like the sentiment of great power comes great responsibility. I just think that there's I, I think what we're discussing is that there's so much more nuance that needs to go into it because it can be so badly applied in, in all directions. Yeah, I mean, what I when you mentioned that, what I think of like living in L.A., is the uh, the issue of homelessness or unhoused people, right? And so many times, like, uh, policymakers, politicians, they say they want to address the issue. And they, u- they, they appear to be using their power for mm-hmm. good to address the issue. But they're not asking the people who are affected, the actual unhoused yeah. people, like... What do you need? How can we help you? They are like, they're imposing their vision of it on it, of, of the problem and the solution without like talking to people. And I think like, that's part of it is like the idea of like responsibility, like people want to help, but I think we get too caught up in what that help is. And like, I'll, I'll say like, we do it to make ourselves feel better rather than you know, making other people feel better, I guess, yeah. uh, or, or helping or actually helping them. I, I think that's a really good way to say it, that, that it often is more about help making ourselves feel better or even making others feel better. I think like homelessness is a great example where a lot of times uh, ho- unhoused people is, is a great example where I think a lot of times that politician's primary focus isn't 
what can I do that is best for the unhoused? It is right now the unhoused being on the street are unpleasant for the rest of our citizens to deal with. So how can I move the unhoused out of public spaces? Because that yeah. the, because the goal is to do something that's better for those people instead of the actual actually people you're trying to help and serve. And I think that's that's maybe another corollary is thinking a lot about okay, who is it you're responsible to then? You know, and who how are you living that yeah. out? I mean there I I see signs posted, there are rules against like, you know, public parks have hours posted. Like you cannot be here, you know, after sunset yeah. or after ten PM or whatever. And that's exactly to keep unhoused people from sleeping yeah. there, right? Like so that there is a law, a rule in place that you can point to and say no. And and in many of those, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. In many and in many of those places, you'll have benches that have spikes on them between the seats, specifically so that it's uncomfortable for people to lay yeah. down. It's yes, I agree. Like it's often not as like malicious as spikes, but it, it's I see that infrastructure. It is much more innocent looking. It is just like an armrest. Yeah. But it's an armrest that's exactly like four feet apart from the next one. So, yeah, you can't sleep on that bench because most people are taller yeah. than that. And, yeah, there are a lot of things like I think I think there's some of this is changing and that public parks. There's a lot of public parks that were constructed without public restrooms, mm -hmm. for example, which seems like a very basic thing that you want to have at a park. But the way those restrooms are used by unhoused people was seen as, you know, unseemly by communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And undesirable. So, yeah, I mean, th this is something like, I don't know what the answer mm -hmm. is for, for this issue, right? The specific issue. But, like, going back to the, the bigger the, the topic of discussion, it's like, yeah, what... Great power, great responsibility. I think, like, yeah, you, you brought up responsibility to who and mentioned that politicians see their responsibility as being to their constituents and uh, more cynically taxpayers, yeah. right? And so, like, unhoused people don't pay taxes, so why should politicians care about them? And, and they don't vote, like, probably. I'm guessing a lot of them don't vote because they don't have a fixed uh, resident, legal yeah. addresses. Yeah, yeah. So they can't vote. So yeah, I think that is that's probably a good way of yeah. looking at it. I think it makes sense. Well, that's uh, Riki and I solve the problems of the day. Uh, hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for being patrons. If you have thoughts, as always, please contact us in any of the places. And we have spoken. I don't think we solved any problems. <laughs> <laughs> and but we talked about them, and I appreciate that. I like. For me, like, expressing my opinion about these things is also just as much as, like, talking out yeah. loud. And then hopefully, like, people feel welcome to express their opinions and even to tell me I'm yeah. wrong. Like, I'm happy to be wrong about things and to learn, to be educated. That's yeah. what I want. I, I don't know if you... You don't have to leave No, that no. It's, it's a great mission <laughs> statement for the podcast. So, all right. Now we're done. Now we're done.